Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Mindfulness may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think of law school, but University of San Francisco professor Rhonda McGee makes a compelling case for connecting the two. Rhonda believes mindfulness training for law students may be able to help the legal profession overcome a history of systemic bias and raise awareness of the fundamental values that were always meant to be at the core of our legal system. In this episode, Rhonda will take us through a short mindfulness exercise that can fit into any busy schedule, and share the story of how she translated the religious contemplation she learned from her grandmother into a secular practice that she uses to help herself and her students stay grounded and focused. So today I'm speaking with Professor Rhonda McGee, who teaches law and mindfulness at the University of San Francisco. And Rhonda, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Good to talk with you, David. That's a really interesting combination of concepts, mindfulness and law. How did you come up with the idea of combining those two? You know, for me, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. In a certain sense, I didn't just come up with the idea, but it kind of overcame me. That is to say, I had had a practice of mindfulness for many years. I, I should say I started practicing mindfulness right around the time when I finished studying for the California Bar. This is way back in 1993. And I, at that point, kind of had been studying you know, undergrad, and I had a graduate degree in sociology and law, and I'd gone kind of pretty much nonstop. I'd done Army, Army ROTC, so I'd become an Army officer along the way. <laughs> so I'd been doing a lot and really just realized that I'd been overworking a certain set of my skills and really was falling down in terms of the ability to calm down, to relax, to take breaks. And, and so right after the bar, when most other students were taking trips or at least relaxing for a while, I had a job lined up that wasn't going to start for a few months, and I just noticed that I was really hyper-keyed up still and couldn't really relax. So I was drawn to sort of find ways to support getting back in touch with who I had been before, who I might be at the core of myself, before all of this kind of really focused effort to kind of become this legal professional that I somehow succeeded in doing. So in a sense, I felt like I was losing my way even as I was finding a new kind of professional place in the world. So started looking for mindfulness trainings and started out with just reading books and listening to tapes early, you know, way back then, just whatever I could. CDs probably were emerging back then, the old-fashioned CD. But at the same time, as I was sort of exploring what was becoming available, and this was still before mindfulness was a, the kind of thing that it is right now, I was really just exploring, you know, Buddhist teachings, Asian Indian teachings on centering practices and mindfulness meditation. But in addition to all of that, I really was able to sort of see the links between those practices and some of the ways that my own grandmother had when I was a really early, really young child. I witnessed my grandmother 
having a deep sort of centering practice of her own, Christian-based. She had been called to the ministry, actually. And so every morning before she got up and out to actually take care of, she, she, she cleaned houses for a living. So we had very different life opportunities. And yet I saw a lot of value in the way in which she would get up every morning before dawn and do 45 minutes or an hour of her own centering and devotional practice. And from there, get up, take care of us, get us going, and then go out and, and take care of the world. And on the weekends, she had time for community ministry. So there's a certain way in which when I started to explore mindfulness I, and, and make began to make a commitment to practicing on a regular basis, I started to see the links between what I was doing and actually the kind of practice that my grandmother had. She would never see the two as related, I'm sure. Bless her, she's no longer with us. So they were obviously very different in terms of the religious underpinnings, but the precise nature of making a commitment to some regular practice was similar. That's a fascinating parallel to recognize, but I'm curious how you drew the connection between your regular practice and your law. So I had that practice, and so fast forward, I practiced law for a few years, then started teaching law, had gotten tenure, and all the while, very committed to my own personal practice, and then found myself really feeling that there was a way in which this sort of compartmentalized existence, where I had this kind of personal practice that was very important to me in sustaining my capacity to go out into the world and into a world that wasn't necessarily created for my thriving, right, as a black woman in a, you know, profession dominated by men still, not, you know, frequented by people of color still. And yet, you know, so I was doing that. And the way that I was managing partly was reliant on these practices. And I could see some of my students struggling with the stress of being in law school, all of them in many, in different ways. And then some of them having the particular challenges that I also had of being, having been a kind of a, from a traditionally marginalized background and coming into law and all of the dissonance that can come with that. So I just really felt a kind of a, a strong and growing sense over the years that I could be a better and more effective teacher. My students might learn better. And then certainly practicing lawyers might be better able to handle the, the not just the stress of law, but the, the deep challenge and the kind of a real social and community privileges that are associated with the role of lawyering could handle all of that more effectively if they, if we all were able to sort of talk about and infuse with studying law and practicing law, some of these awareness practices that we associate now with mindfulness. Wow. The way that you describe it, I can see, I can see just such a logical organic growth from the spirituality of your grandmother when, when you were a child. And then you, when you were studying, starting to study mindfulness yourself, you looked into religious practices as well as other spiritual practices. Can you tell us a little bit about the mindfulness practice that you arrived at for yourself? So I did study Buddhism, as I said, and, and ultimately ended up, you know, over the course of years working with a Zen Buddhist teacher. His name is Norman Fisher. He's based here in the Bay Area. He has had a tremendous career, if you will, as a teacher with the San Francisco Zen Center, and now he runs an organization called Everyday Zen. His purpose is to help with the translation project, to kind of 
take Buddhism and all of its essential beauty and make it available to anyone as a support for everyday life. And he's been working with a group of lawyers here in the Bay Area for years. And so back in 2005 or six or so, I started sitting with that group. So that was a way of kind of deepening my own sort of personal and then having a kind of a community of practice around Buddhism. But I didn't necessarily feel I needed to claim that as a religion. I really was a deep student of it and certainly a practitioner. And I I feel like I will always be a student and a practitioner of Buddhism, looking for the intersections between the religion of my birth, you know, the loving kindness, the sort of deep way in which Christ's message was about, I feel a kind of a revolutionary love that liberates everybody or could. So looking for connections between these various traditions. I also ultimately began to look for people who were translating those kinds of themes into more secular language. So I happened actually to be placed on a stage with none other than John Kabat-Zinn and his partner in bringing mindfulness into the world very broadly. His name is Saki Santorelli. John and Saki have been running the Center for Mindfulness out of the University of Massachusetts Medical Center for many years. So in conversation with John and Saki about bringing practices, by then I was already teaching meditation to lawyers and law students, and they were we were talking about, again, the way these practices could help create a more effective society. How could we bring these practices into the world generally? I was just so appreciative of the work that they had done to kind of really effectively draw on the deep principles of Buddhism, but translated those principles and practices into language that anyone, language and practices, that any one of us could engage in with or without connecting it up with Buddhism or any other religious or philosophical tradition. That's interesting. So it's the separation of the intrinsic value of the practice itself from the religious trappings, mm-hmm. either Buddhist or Christian or whatever. So that that sort of secularization, if you will, of these practices appealed to me. I know for some people, yeah, frankly, it can be somewhat controversial, but for me, especially given that I was working in academia with lawyers, I was already trying to translate and make much more secular, completely secular, actually, the delivery of the practices with my law students and in support of lawyers. So we were already trying to do some translation, but to see how beautifully refined the mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher training and delivery program was that John and Saki were doing, I just was drawn to that community, to the two of them. And so I ultimately completed the teacher training program of the OASIS, they call it their OASIS Teacher Training Institute, which is part of the Center for Mindfulness. So that also is part of my background. So now having trained in MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and really gotten become a part of the community of secular mindfulness teachers in the West, which is now kind of a broad community, includes people trained like I have been through programs like the Center for Mindfulness offers, but it also includes people who are drawn in through psychology, right? Because we realize that these practices are a kind of training for the mind, a training in well-being that one can engage, practices for well-being that you can engage, any one of us can engage wherever we are and wherever we need them. So psychology has been one field that's really been drawn to finding ways to bring mindfulness into cognitive psychotherapy, right, right into 
really the hard challenges of moving from sort of a sense of distress and into a state of well-being. So this broader mindfulness community then includes people who, like me, have been drawn in through a kind of a deep engagement with the underlying spiritual and religious traditions, but then also people who have been drawn in through a more, even more secularized cognitive well-being framework. And so it's a big community of mindfulness folks, and I'm, I feel honored to be a part of it because I do think they do offer such value to the world. I can see where it would be challenging to try to integrate so many diverse backgrounds into something that, that really can benefit people. And I know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of my listeners now are going to be very curious. I was wondering if you could give us a small sample of what the experience of mindfulness is that you teach. Sure. Like many people, I'm very committed to grounding the work that I do in simple awareness of breath practice. Like this is a very simple practice that I'll guide us in, whereby we recognize that at the heart of mindfulness is the capacity to bring awareness to, well, to any chosen object, right? So it's the kind of capacity to become present with as little judgment as possible to whatever is arising and to support this development, right? Because any one of us can be mindful, but lots of evidence indicates practicing actually helps make us more reliably able to be mindful when we choose. And so the practices often rely upon a kind of a core practice of finding a particular object of awareness and resting one's awareness on that. And often, and because again, the breath is with us everywhere we go, our bodies are with us everywhere we go, we start with practices that are body and, and breath-based. And so a simple such practice would invite just sort of sitting with intentionality, really bringing one's attention to the sensations of sitting right now. If you're, if you're sitting, if you're standing, as maybe, as listeners may be, there's nothing particularly special about sitting, but if you're sitting, if you can just notice the points of contact between the floor and the body, so the feet on the floor, the buttocks in a chair, and if you're standing similarly, just noticing the sense of the body as you stand, the height, the width, the depth of, the, of your being in this moment. And so you may close your eyes or not if you're comfortable. Again, you don't have to close your eyes. It may help to allow you to center to, if you decide to keep your eyes open, to pick a point in front of you just a couple feet ahead where you're just going to rest your attention. Something that's not busy, maybe not moving. And so the invitation is once we have attuned to the body, attended to this embodied being in this moment, the sensation of standing or sitting, the invitation is to just allow your attention then to rest even more on the sensations of breathing. So we're not thinking about breathing, but we're just seeing if we can locate the in-breath or the out-breath, wherever you happen to be in this, thank goodness, continuous cycle by which we breathe in and out. And just rest your attention as fully as possible on the sensations of breathing, whether breathing in or breathing out. 
and to assist you in just dropping into these sensations. It often helps to identify a particular point in the body where you can really feel the in-breath or the out-breath. It might be just right around the nostrils where if you really focus, you might be able to feel a slight shift in temperature or just feel the air very gently caressing the skin as you breathe in and out. Or it could be the diaphragm low beneath the belly button. You might notice just a gentle rising and falling as you breathe deeply down into the belly. A kind of breathing, not high in the chest, but down into the belly. That's actually quite associated with, with calming and relaxation. And if the mind wanders, you simply, and with compassion for the mind that will wander, just gently bring your attention back to the sensations of breathing. Just notice, oh, I'm thinking now. Um, maybe I'm having a judgment. You could just allow whatever arises to just be released, almost as you might a balloon floating across, across a blue sky. And bring your attention right back to the sensations of breathing in and breathing out. And again, if your mind wanders, it might help to count. Simply breathe, breathing in, you might count one. Breathing out, count one, and so on. Perhaps up to ten, and then you might just begin again. For those of us who like to count progress, you might see if you can get up to 21 without your mind wandering. And if up to that, then up to 108, at which point you certainly will have experienced this kind of stabilizing capacity, right? The ability to stabilize the mind that can come from regular mindfulness practice. So when you're ready, if we could just together release this particular practice session, these few moments of mindfulness, just being an offering of an experience, which of course is just a taste. So when you're ready, if you can, if you had your eyes closed, open them when you're ready, gently noticing the riot of sensory input that comes when you shift from simply the inward gaze of mindfulness practice into re-engagement with the world. And you might just see if you can bring that sense of 
kind of presence, awareness of your embodied being, the grace of it, into the conversations you have next, into whatever activities you engage in next. Because ultimately, it's really mindfulness for the world. It's, it's what we do to support the being with others that is the human experience. That was absolutely beautiful and such a feeling as an experience that you can really take with you and do wherever or whenever you are. Exactly. I love it's that. Very portable. <laughs> you said the repetition of this on a regular basis is an important part of your mm -hmm. practice, right? Indeed. I have regularly practiced in the morning for years. And then I also, though, practice at different times during the day when I can. You know, I think for me, it's beneficial to start early in the morning before I get caught up in, you know, my normal habits and patterns and conditions of the day. For me, I find that because I've experimented with different times of practice. And, you know, so, you know, you might decide, oh, I want to practice at night because that's a time when I can kind of relax and get into a state of restful being, where which might help me sleep better. And I think that can be true as well. So, but for me, because of the emphasis that I place on working to support bringing mindfulness into the world, I really have found it beneficial for me to have a regular morning practice. And it can be, you know, whatever length works. I mean, I'm, again, one of these people that believes we just do what we can and see what works. We may not have a long period of time. Interesting. I imagine that the time commitment involved in a practice is one of the reasons why a lot of people don't even get started. A lot of the research on mindfulness has been based on the kind of traditional standard, research-validated mindfulness-based stress reduction practices or some facsimile thereof, and the program of learning. That's an eight-week course. You practice for two hours with a group. You're instructed to practice for 45 minutes or so every day or at least five days out of seven between those meetings with the group. So it's actually a pretty intense immersion into a kind of a regular committed 45-minute practice for eight weeks if you can do it. Radical shift from the way we typically are. So it takes some, that kind of practice can take some commitment to, all right, I'm going to carve out 45 minutes each day and I'm going to sit and I'm going to do body scans and I'm gonna walking meditation. But you don't have to do all of that to experience the benefits of mindfulness. You can certainly just say, I can maybe practice awareness of breath for a few minutes. And who doesn't have a few minutes? And I think that then from there, one can just sort of start to see what benefit is there. Because I think mindfulness uh, for me is much less about what we can say about it, you know, or even what the researchers tell us about it, although it's very helpful. It's a deeply experiential teaching and learning practice. I'm fascinated by the teaching and learning aspect of this. A lot of people have, have come to mindfulness mm -hmm. and, you know, certainly out of backgrounds where they were, in, you know, students or they were in stress. But when you came to it, it felt to you like something that you not only wanted to practice for your own benefit, but also something that you wanted to share. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you came to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I was, you know, in teaching at a university, University of San Francisco, just academia generally is a place where there's just a lot of distress. You know, on the one hand, we're all there because we kind of want to be there. There's some part of us that wants this kind of stress, right? The what, the what the scientists call you stress, the good stress, right? That that which tells us we're doing something that you know we we feel challenged by, we are invigorated by, we're challenging ourselves in a positive way. 
And so, you know, everybody in academia, whether teachers or students, we are in some ways doing what we came to do and we are happy to be there. But like any discipline, and even when you love, right, it can certainly be overwhelming. And studying law for most people is an overwhelming immersion into a kind of new way of thinking. People say it's like learning a new language in a new town, you know, under stress, under time pressure. It's all of that. So every year I would teach first year law students, you know, large classes of 120 students. And then also second and third years who were in different developmental stages, but preparing to go out now and take what they're learning into real life conflict, helping people resolve divorce situations of high emotional and other conflict, helping people in criminal situations figure out what to do facing, you know, the possibility of a plea bargain and going, you know, relinquishing their freedom or ultimately even defending people on death row. The range of kinds of ways that people practice law include those highly stressful situations, but even somewhat less stressful situations like transactional law and property law, helping people, you know, form a business or form some sort of an organization or do a deal that is seen as mutually beneficial. At whatever level and whatever the consequences and stakes, and they vary quite a bit, there's just a lot of stress in law practice. So I would see my students, and I, and I knew from my own experience as a lawyer, I represented a lot of large insurance companies, AIG, the travelers among them, in a corporate litigation practice before going into teaching. So I knew from my own experience of both being a student, being in academia, being a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, and being a woman and a woman of color through all of those scenarios, that life is stressful. There's a lot of suffering. <laughs> and certainly that meant for me, if I you know, really wanted to do the very best I could, I knew I needed to sort of do some things to support myself and being able to be clear, to be focused, and to have a clear sense of my own value, I think. Because again, we can be buffeted about and lose sense of who we are in these scenarios. And that is not a recipe for long-term success, I don't think, or sustainability. And so I saw that in myself and I saw that in my students, you know, really looking for some lifelines in the midst of, again, doing this theme thing they came to do. They fought to become a law student. And then in the midst of it, they're finding themselves overwhelmed, finding themselves slowly falling into patterns, some of them of dealing with stress through self-medication, through alcohol or worse types of drugs, smoking suddenly again when they had stopped before, or just otherwise really feeling themselves at sea. And so for me, it just was a very natural thing as a teacher already to really want to share what I was passionate to do, to meet conflict and be a catalyst for growth, maybe for healing, for community re-engagement in some way, as opposed to somehow churning the conflict or making things worse. <laughs> so for all these reasons, both the personal, the kind of interpersonal, the ways in which I knew I could relate with students better, they could relate with each other better and clients better, but the broader systemic implications as well were also obvious to me. And that piece, I think, partly because I have a background in sociology. You know, I was in graduate school studying how people resolve conflict before I went to law school. So I've had this interest in broader social impacts and, and law in the world for a very long time. So I think that's probably at least a part as well 
of how, you know, for me, it seemed almost like imperative after a certain point. I just felt like these practices are just too beneficial for me to just simply hold on to them for myself. And when I could be of some service to my students and when my students could maybe be a better service to the world. You make a very compelling case for this, and I'm sure that this was helpful for you. But when I think about academia in particular, and then the austere academia of law scholarship, I imagine that it's difficult to introduce a practice like yeah. this into yeah. an official curriculum. Well, this is true. So I should say, I mean, I actually went through a period, a kind of a dark period. It wasn't all rosy. There was a period where I sort of felt like, wow, I got in tenure. I've done all the things I was supposed to do to be able to stay here. And I looked around, I was like, but where am I? I can teach law. And I can, you know, support my students in passing the bar. But there was a way in which I just felt that it was too disconnected from not only these deep, these mindfulness practices, but again, the broader questions that draw me to mindfulness and, and draw me to wanting to teach and be of service in the world. I mean, I really felt like while law school and legal education was obviously trying to be, you know, part of solutions to problems. It just felt like some, the way in which we we're approaching it was leaving a lot of value out of the conversation. We weren't engaging the whole student, even though I was at a Jesuit university committed to teaching the whole student. And yet we weren't really teaching the whole student. We were teaching how to think like a lawyer, a highly cognitive, very adversarial, traditional model for lawyering, which in my own experience as a lawyer, you know, one needs to know, again, those core competencies, but there are so many other skills and interpersonal dimensions, emotional intelligence, social intelligence. There's so much more than the traditional curriculum of law school that I knew would be valuable to law students. And I could see from my mindfulness practice and training that a lot of that would offer, would support deepening the curriculum of legal education in ways that would meet some of the long-standing criticisms of lawyers in society, that we don't listen to clients very well, you know, that we don't recognize the kind of deep emotional and social implications of the work that we do. And we are, you know, too hyper-technical sometimes, such that we can miss the broader moral implications of what we might be about to argue. So while on the one hand, we want lawyers to be able to kind of, again, pick up those traditional legal advocacy skills as needed, we also want lawyers with heart. We also want lawyers in touch with their own values and with the broader values that are more and more kind of under-acknowledged or under-taught, if you will, but the deeper values that motivate or are meant to be the foundation for the legal system, social service being one of them. So over the last generation or so, lawyers have been criticized more and more for failing the public service mission that we have sworn, you know, in our various state bars, we swear to not only uphold our, you know, federal and state constitutions and the laws that we're practicing, but really to be of some deep service and to help be, you know, supports for communities in, in resolving their conflicts positively. The American Bar Association, for example, has very lofty, beautiful language to that effect. And the ABA accredits all the law schools. So there are, there are these professional commitments that were not showing up in the actual, and they weren't showing up, let's say, as richly as they might in the way that we traditionally taught law. 
I could name a number of different reports of, you know, that studied legal education and said, hey, there's some problems here. I'll just mention one, the Carnegie report that came out, I think, in 2008, looked at legal education and said, across the board, it looks like lawyers are being trained well in the cognitive dimensions of what it means to practice law, the sort of knowledge apprenticeship. We're teaching what you need to know in terms of the basics to pass the bar and practice law. But the professional apprenticeships of law can include not just knowledge, but skills. Okay, we're teaching knowledge, we're teaching skills, how to argue, how to write. We're doing those relatively well. The third apprenticeship, though, values, right? We teach knowledge, skills, and values. And the Carnegie Foundation, in its analysis of legal education, found that across the board, we were failing to teach those deep values of the system, of the legal system, and also failing to teach law students to be in touch with their own values, such that they could be more ethical, that they could actually, again, engage in the moral dimensions of the arguments that they might make and help people make wiser decisions, help society function, you know, more effectively and sustainably. That third apprenticeship, the values apprenticeship, people were saying, legal education isn't doing that very well. And so for me, it just seemed like, okay, I'm reading this. I was working on, in some capacity at the law school, I was heading up a committee looking at what's going on with legal education? How can we improve it? And so seeing this very well articulated critique of legal education, which pointed directly to the dimensions that I was personally feeling were, you know, not being amplified. I was emboldened thereby to sort of figure out a way Rather than leave law, which is something I thought about doing when I was in that dark night period of like, wow, is this all there is? Is this the best we can do? I really had thought about maybe I should, you know, go back to sociology or maybe I should go and get a degree in theology. You know, maybe maybe law isn't for me. I actually got a, had a very good, actually a, a counselor, a therapist, who told me the, some of the, the best therapeutic advice I've ever gotten, where she said, you know, you could always leave your job. You could always quit <laughs> after having gotten tenure in San Francisco, a city many people would love to have a permanent job in. That's always an option. But before you do that, why don't, and given you have this strong call, inward call that you want to do something more with your life and you feel like these practices and this orientation that you have could be a part of it. And at the same time, you see these criticisms that others are making of law. Maybe there's a way that you're not alone, that there might be people in law who also want to see something done differently. And maybe there's a way that you could find more of a sense of an integrated wholeness, the wholeness that I was personally seeking, right, as opposed to being compartmentalized, mindfulness over here, law professor over there, bringing the two together and perhaps do that in ways that would benefit the profession and the academy. This therapist suggested, you know, why don't you explore that? See if there are allies that you might find either at your school or beyond who you know might help you and to get, with whom together you might find ways of changing legal education and law practice bringing in mindfulness other supports in ways that would benefit yes you but also again the broader academy and maybe beyond and so that's really what it was it was me feeling so distressed that i was in counseling trying to figure out what i was going to do and getting advice that was really life-changing for me, that was about, you know, if you're in distress about the work that you're doing, it might be that you could bring more of yourself to the work. You might drop a deeper anchor into the work, figure out how or whether it might be possible 
to change just enough of what you're doing. So you're still doing what you're being paid to do, but you're bringing in what it is you feel called to bring in. She gave me that advice probably around 2004. <laughs> so here we are in 2016. And it really has been just, uh, it was an on-ramp into, into like sort of a, a highway, if you will, now of kind of a way of bringing mindfulness into law that fit what I needed to thrive, but also seems more and more to be part of what many, many people feel is just what's needed in legal education and law practice and in the broader society to support us as we go through this kind of largely chaotic and kind of disrupting all over the place world. That's a very inspiring experience. And what I really take from that is that you were in your dark period and you were feeling like you might want to abandon what you were doing, but instead mm -hmm. you chose to double down and seek out community so that you could not only do what you're doing for yourself, but also expand it out and bring Absolutely. in other people. Absolutely. I mean, so that's a very important part for me. It really wasn't about, well, I'm just going to do this all by myself and there must be a way I can. I personally don't think much is done in the world without other people. Like we, you know, we, there are those heroes whose names get attached to things, but there are always networks surrounding them and supporting them. And there's certainly a huge network now of people in law and mindfulness. And I found when I was going through this period, a little, a small network, right? I found this group of lawyers that was already sitting with this Zen master in Berkeley who were lawyers, few law professors, a judge or two. They were together and it was a small group and it's never been more than say 12 or 14 of us. And we've still continued to sit. In fact, we're going to sit tonight together. And I'll share that we talked about this. But this group was brought together trying to figure out how could we, how could we benefit personally from these practices? But then as we continue to practice over the years, I mean, again, this is a long standing project. And that's another theme I would suggest people bear in mind. We don't make change like this overnight. You do make a deep commitment and you find your allies and then you work at it with patience and with intentionality over time and change can happen. So at first we were just sort of sitting together. And then over the years, we started to, to sort of have conversations in our group about precise ways we could take these into the world, these practices into the world. And got, we got support from our teacher to offer retreats for lawyers, to think about offering classes that would include mindfulness. Or if we were thinking about it, you know, we got support for doing it as opposed to just thinking about it in that group. And then that group, we had contacts with, you know, folks like uh, Scott Rogers, who's at the University of Miami doing similar work. People like Lynn Riskin, who's been in both Florida and in the Midwest. Just people all who were some of the early pioneers, but from outside of the Bay Area and now across the country, who now, you know, have been a part of, again, this national movement to create receptivity, opening, practice opportunities, experiences where people can just begin to explore and then ultimately deepen the way in which mindfulness might be brought to bear on the practice of law. That's excellent. And it's amazing that something that you might have started feeling was so obscure, you actually found out that there was a network out there to support it. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to bring back, you mentioned issues with marginalized communities. Yeah. And I know you've done some writings on how mindfulness can relate to how that can be improved. Yeah. Again, I've mentioned already, I see mindfulness as having personal, interpersonal, and then broader systemic implications. Because really, we're just talking about 
how we relate to the world and to everything and everyone in it, and how we do that with more consciousness and awareness. And certainly, I also feel like we are all given the particular experiences of our own lives, our own particular social locations for some value, for some reason. There's some teaching that I believe is innately meant to come through our own life experiences. And so for me, I identify with people who have traditionally been at the margins in law, in academia, in upper and middle class community, because I grew up in a poor neighborhood in the, what I call the desegregating South, right? It was, you know, born in, I'll out myself in terms of age, born in 1967, entering public school at a time in North Carolina where we, we hadn't actually desegregated. It was 1973. But and Brown versus Board had been on the books for, you know, since the mid 50s. But my kindergarten school was still run under the system of segregation. And so there were a number of schools like that in the South where I was living. And we just learned actually, frankly, today, there's a news item today about a Mississippi school just getting desegregated today, 2016. That's just amazing to hear. Yeah, exactly. So having come up through like the experience of both, you know, that sort of social outsiderness that really that system was meant to make a permanent status for people, kind of a caste like you're, you're going to only be allowed in so far. But then seeing how through changes in law, through social advocacy, like a multiracial movement for justice, not the first in this country, but one certainly that I felt myself a beneficiary of, right? So I've come along at a time when Suddenly, the Supreme Court is saying, you've got to desegregate schools, and we mean this, we mean busing. And Virginia, where I was living at the time, moving from North Carolina to Virginia, we did experiment with successfully desegregating schools. I feel I was a beneficiary of changes in law that made possible my being here, my everything that I've been able to do. So I feel like my own experience is a kind of a source of meditation for me. And I look at just how... We've structured society in ways that make it more or less possible for any of us to thrive. And this is not just about race or gender or sexual orientation or gender status, if you will, rather rather trans or cis. There are so many different ways. And now with, with the real dislocating impacts of globalization on everyone, the destabilizing nature of, you know, the beauty of technology that enables us to have this conversation we know that when you combine that with globalization and increasing economic inequality, the lived experience that most of us are having, wherever we are, whatever our background, whatever our physical makeup, is one of greater uncertainty and distress, actually, about being able to manage all the changes that are around us. And so there's just a way, I think, that we have these lived experiences for a reason and that we can bring awareness more specifically to the systems that we're in and that so mindfulness actually can help us develop sort of small, medium, short-term, long-term, personal, interpersonal, systemic ways of really trying to create a world where all of us can thrive. And so for me, it's just a question of, well, where's the inequality or where's the injustice or whose voice isn't being heard here? And my attunement to that is a feature of my mindfulness practice. Because, again, we can have blind spots about all of these things. I mean, you know, that's how 
we get through life in some ways because we can't pay attention to everything. And we start to just say, well, I'm only going to pay attention to this kind of suffering or that, or I don't, you know, I don't have time to worry about everything. And mindfulness to me has been a way of, first of all, really sensing the great gift of my life, you know, with gratitude so that I do, no matter what barriers or disadvantages I or any of us experience, and we all will, right? Life is going to be full of suffering and pain in many ways, even if we're fortunate. But for me, mindfulness practice is a way of holding all of that with ultimately a sense of the the great mystery and the great majesty of just what it means to be alive. And from there, I have a little bit more capacity every day, even though those days when I'm feeling a little down, to look around and ask, uh, how can I help uplift somebody else? And not just in a personal and interpersonal sense, but then to say, all right, well, where are the systemic changes that I might get involved in making so that we're not just constantly recreating you know, unconsciously, patterns of access and inclusion, inclusion, exclusion, which, you know, again, run through our society. And if we don't attend to them, will inevitably, I think, I think our history has borne it out, just keep recreating, again, these patterns in which some of us are thriving more than others. And so I bring mindfulness, I try, my objective with mindfulness is to become more aware about everything, to live more fully. And that sometimes, that means for me, paying attention to the the marginalized, the kind of oppressed, if you will, wherever I am, and trying to work in ways, again, that bring personal, interpersonal, and systemic change through awareness into the world. That's inspiring because it not only encourages awareness of these things that might otherwise go unseen because of privilege or whatever, but Mm -hmm. also the the internal fortitude to be able to stand up against larger systems and say, you know, this is something that I can confront. This is something I can be present to. That was just amazing. I'm wondering, how can people find you online and find out more about these practices? Well, I do have a website under construction, as my digital consultant person is telling me. I can use that phrase. But my name is just Rhonda V. McGee, R-H-O-N-D-A, V. McGee, M-A-G-E-E. If you put that in Google, you can find more about me, both through the work I've been doing at the University of San Francisco. And then you can find writings and web offerings, some videos, et cetera, of some of the work that I've been doing. And I'm working on a book. So I'll keep writing, I'll keep speaking. And I really appreciate, David, this opportunity to talk with you about my work. All right, thank you so much for joining us today. Be well. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>